If you've been following along with the show, you'll know that I really enjoy bringing together people from similar backgrounds to create extraordinary conversations. This episode was extra special for me personally because both of my guests are fellow Aussies and have gone and done big things on sport's biggest stage. Darren Burgess is renowned as one of the premier performance directors in the world, having made a name for himself as the fitness coach at Port Adelaide in the AFL. Currently, he's the high-performance manager at Melbourne Football Club, having spent the last two years heading up performance at Premier League club Arsenal. Paddy Steinfurt is Director of Performance and Leadership Development at the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA. After spending seven years as a professional AFL player and a handful more working in the game, he moved to the US to study psychology. That opportunity has led Paddy to have roles with the Philadelphia Eagles, Toronto Blue Jays, and Boston Red Sox. Hey, a quick personal note before we get into the episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could take two seconds to rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It genuinely does help others find it as well. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Paddy Steinford, how are you, mate? Good, thanks, Cody. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing fantastic. Darren Burgess, we've got you on the line as well. How are you? Good, thanks, Cody. Great to, uh, great to be involved, mate. Big fan of, uh, of what you're doing and, uh, in your book and the podcast. So very happy to be here. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate that. This is going to be a tough one for anyone that struggles with the Australian accent, but we'll... <laughs> We'll continue, we'll continue on. Yeah, really looking forward to this conversation. I think, you know, in terms of my show and, and what we do and, and bringing ideas together, I really like, you know, our shared history and we'll, we'll start there. But also just the different things that you guys do in terms of, you know, the physical and the mental preparation of, of athletes at the highest level. Let's start with footy, Aussie rules. Kind of a common thread for us and... And I get asked a lot, obviously, you know, the head coach of the Canadian team, still developing sport here, just on television. A lot of people still think we're rugby, but it's, it's something that, that we've all kind of grown up with back in Australia. And, and Paddy, you, you're a professional player for a little while. So maybe we'll start with you. What was it like, you know, growing up in Melbourne? Just explain to people what that environment is like and, and then, you know, making it into the AFL and, and that lifestyle that comes with the religious sport of AFL and just kind of going through that from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah, uh, I was, I was one of five kids growing up in a footy mad family and, uh, and we were all besides one uh, black sheep of the family. Everyone was a mad Tigers fan. And so at, you know, nowadays that might sound good, but back when I was a kid, we barely won. Uh, we barely finished above like second or the bottom of the ladder for many years in a row. But it was a passion and we went every other week to the MCG and, and just loved it. And, and at that stage, I had zero idea that I was going to end up playing, but you'd always dream about it. And you'd play with your brothers and you'd play with your mates at school. And it was just the, the, the closest thing I can equate it to is probably, uh, Burjo will be able to speak to this better, but probably 
football in London and the fact that there's so many teams around the city and that it's to some degree a, a cultural religious phenomenon or, or maybe maybe baseball in the Dominican Republic is the other place I've been where it, where it equates to the level of religious worship, I guess, and how central it is to the community. I, uh, I was six foot six and I grew up in a family of four boys, so we used to beat each other up and that probably accelerated our development a little bit. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to be able to be drafted in the first round to, uh, to Richmond and that happened to be the team that I, uh, in America, they say rooted for, but I'll say Barrett because there's our Aussies on the line. And so all my dreams came true, like literally at that, at that point in time. And I remember going to the first training session and kicking the footy with Matt Richardson and Matty Knights and Benny Gale and going home that night to my bedroom where those guys' posters were still on my wall as a 17-year-old. And it was kind of surreal. I quickly took them down because I realized I got I to get serious and grow up. Um, but like you said, li- living in that city and, and the, uh, the lifestyle of a football player, particularly back then when guys like Burjo hadn't, uh, hadn't taken control of the league, the, the requirements in terms of being healthy and looking after yourself as a professional athlete were probably a little lax. And the culture of the teams were a little more focused on fitting in with the boys rather than doing what it takes to well, definitely at the team I went to anyway. And so we lived a, a pretty good life for a few years there in Melbourne. And, and yeah, it, it, it taught me a lot eventually. You said I was a professional athlete for a few years. I like to say I tried to be a professional athlete for a few years because within uh, five years, I was released by uh, Danny Frawley, rest in peace. And the and then I tried for a couple of years to get back in through the VFL or SANFL, but it never really worked. I had a, a bunch of uh, bunch of injuries that probably made me not a great asset for a team. And uh, and also it was around the time the uh, the game was changing somewhat in terms of the requirements. And I was I was the height of what a ruckman used to be, and then uh, and then I was the height of what a I guess now you know, Matt Pavlich is a is a center or Nat Fife is, is close to my height, and that's yeah, it's uh, it's hard to comprehend. So, games change a lot since I was in it, but I I do know that I I look forward to any particularly to the finals and having a banter with my brother and some mates back home. It is just it still is a, a pretty um, important part of my social connection to people, and you know looking forward to I don't know when this episode is going to air, but looking forward to the uh, grand final, which is going to be midnight Friday. Uh, in New York City, it'll be great. The thing that I love is that every couple of years we get to take our guys to Australia to actually experience that. I've been to two international cups in Melbourne now, and, and getting you know North American guys to actually see what we're talking about when we talk about footy and go to the G and, and hear the crowd. You know, it's not the same on TV, and and you know walking the streets and and having our guys get stopped as you know amateur athletes that. You know, yes, they might grow up in Toronto and have seen hockey and kind of understand that religious element. Yeah, there you go. That's a good example. To get stopped on the street wearing a, a Team Canada AFL jacket is just something else. <laughs> well, I, I, I had, sorry, I, just on that, we had, um, we've got a Navy SEAL in here at the moment. We're doing a couple of exercises with the coach. And also a couple of our coaches came back from the World Championships with the USA and they happened to play the Aussie team in the lead up to the world champs in China and they went to a game in Melbourne 
And so, and they were just blown away by the MCG number one, like just uh, that, that structure and that, that Coliseum, but also by the fervor of the fans. I think they went to Collingwood Essendon. Uh, so they, they, they caught themselves a real match and they were, they couldn't stop talking about how amazed they were. They didn't understand the game, obviously rules and stuff, but they were struck by how huge the game is and the culture and the, the impact that it has on, on people in Melbourne in particular. Yeah, it really is hard to explain. You have to see it. Burjo, Paddy's basically said that you ruined Aussie Rules football. You know, how did you arrive on the scene in the AFL? You know, what was your kind of pathway? And then, yeah, let's talk about that process of, you know, the, the real professionalization of, of the sport and, and even Australia's role in that because, you know, that might be a nice segue to what you guys are doing now and the kind of, you know, Australians leaving and, uh, and having an impact on, on a global scale. But, yeah, what was your introduction into to footy on the staff side? Yeah, I was never good enough to be a player in any code. I tried in cricket and, and did okay, but never good enough. A lot of these people, Paddy's an exception, but a lot of people in my industry say, well, I was a pretty good player, but I got injured and cut down, and so I decided to do something else. Um, no, I was never good enough. So um, I thought the best way to be involved in sport was to study it. So, you know, did the exercise science and that sort of thing and went on to do some postgrad. But in terms of footy, I was reluctantly involved with the Sydney Swans. Um, I had no interest in AFL at all growing up in Sydney. I wasn't particularly big in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I ended up <clears throat> getting a job as the runner for the Swans. By that, I mean in training pre-season because I knew Sydney well and most of the players were from around Australia. Um, my job was essentially every Saturday to lead the guys out on a run through some of the sites in Sydney so they'd become a bit more familiar. So I, I had to get fit pretty quickly. Um, and that's how I started and then just worked my way up through the ranks with the Swans and then went to to football or soccer uh, and then found my way into uh, Port Adelaide in 2005 just after they won the, won the premiership or the championship depending on which part of the world you come from. I had a few years there, then went back to to soccer um, with the Australian national team, and then um, back to Port Adelaide in two thousand end of two thousand and twelve. After a, a few years with the Socceroos, and then a few years with Liverpool over here in England, and had four years with Port Adelaide then. So the, I think the, there's a couple of reasons why sports performance, sports science, whatever you want to call it is so prevalent in, in Australia and so respected, I guess, and Australians are respected. Um, in AFL, there's a salary cap, so you can't just go out and buy, you know, uh, the best player. You can't go out and trade for James Harden or I'm a Houston Rockets man, so I'm going to use Rockets people. <laughs> um, you can't go out and, you know, buy Lionel Messi or Ronaldo or whoever, you know. So there's a draft system, so you're forced to develop talent and you then just can't go and buy talent um, in the AFL so AFL clubs quickly got pretty savvy to, to that and thought the best way to attract talent through trades and develop talent is to get the best people around the, the team and not necessarily the players so they started to look to coaches and performance analysts and sports scientists and fitness coaches and physios and doctors to really give them that competitive edge and so that's probably one of the main reasons why um, uh, AFL performance is, is so well-respected and so influential. 
And then the second reason is the AIS and the support services that that provided uh, the rest of the sports in the country, particularly the Olympic sports. They really surrounded the athletes with the very best of uh, physiology and sports medicine. And, and so that kind of paved the way AFL teams sort of handpicked people from the AIS and from the various institute of sports around the country. And, and then so suddenly the physiologists who were used to being in the lab suddenly got some team sport exposure and, and then sort of flourished from there. That wasn't necessarily my path, but certainly a lot of successful human performance people and, and um, uh, sports scientists, that's, that's, that was their path. So that's probably um, why AFL people was, was so and are so respected within, within global sports. Bojo, tell me if, if you think this is right. Someone said this to me once when we were, that same question came up. I think there was a bunch of Aussies coming through America and we were sitting over a beer in between a session and, and someone suggested that because of the Olympics, so yeah, we definitely know that the government gave more funding to sports because they wanted to justify having the Olympics and spending all that money. But there was an element of when you look at particularly, you know, I'm, I'm immersed in America and so it, it absolutely is the case here. And I assume a little bit to the, to the same degree in Europe, but the, the American approach is, look, if you're not good enough, we'll just find another one. We've got, a, we've got 20 other guys lining up who have the same physiological attributes and if you break, we'll go to the next one. But in Australia, we didn't have that luxury with a population of whatever it was at the time, 24 million. Uh, and, and it was much more about we can't, we don't have the depth or the volume of athletes to have the extreme outliers that, are, that America does, as an example. And so we're just going to have to squeeze the orange and get all the juice out of it. And that means that we'll have to find the one percenters through sports science that America wasn't really forced to do. They just had naturally freak athletes and they didn't really have to invest in sports science. Does that ring true to you? Yeah, 100%. And, and you add on to that the layer of the fact that and number one sport in Australia is probably cricket and then AFL and then rugby, rugby league, and then probably soccer in perhaps in that order. So each of those sports compete for athletes. And when you only have a population of, you know, when we were growing up, 18, 19 million is probably up around the 24 million now, as you say, um, there, there then becomes that competitive. The AFL want to keep the athletes Locker wants to keep the athletes, so they, they start to look for different avenues, whereas in Amer- America and Europe, you know, America, they play two or three different sports, of course, more than that, obviously, but focus on those few sports, but there's enough talent to go around. In Europe, there's only a handful of sports. So, you know, New Zealand solved that problem by everyone just playing rugby. <laughs> and, and the athletes are incredibly different across the sports as well. Like you compare a baseball player to a basketball player, they couldn't be much different. Exactly right. So, yeah, I think that there's an, a, a significant element of that as well. Something that I get asked regularly is how do you even prepare for this game? You know, it's probably something I've only realised since leaving home, but a lot of people are blown away by the dynamism of AFL, the 360-degree nature. You get tackled from anywhere. You can have passages where you might sprint 200 metres, get tackled, you know, three or four high-intensity efforts in a contest, then have to get up and, and sprint, you know, 100 metres back the other way. Burjo, from an exercise science perspective, how easy or difficult was that dynamic to figure out coming into the game from the outside, you know, not even as a fan, like you mentioned before? 
I think firstly you have to acknowledge that the majority of people that make it in AFL in terms of players are of a, a specific, you know, we'll call it an Aussie mentality. And that's not to put Aussies above anybody else, but most of them are country. Uh, the majority of them, I think it's up around 70, 75% are country um, born. So they're not city uh, growing up. So that breeds a certain sort of, mental resilience that, that Patty would be able to comment on uh, better than me. But um, so you have to acknowledge that the players uh, come from, I guess, a certain stock and, and certain upbringing, which breeds a little bit of uh, that toughness and willingness to work. You just could not play AFL unless you had a certain level of, of toughness. So, so there's that that I think underpins everything. Um, from a physiological point of view, you I always start with the game and break it down. So having not grown up in AFL at all, I did two things. I looked at the research and there wasn't any, so I created my own research and tracked players in games using a, an old software system that, again, Paddy, you'd remember because of Neil Craig, called Track Performance. Um, I became a bit of an expert in that. And in order to do that, I spent about 180 hours tracking players um, so it was a, a long process. And secondly, um, I actually went and played at a really, really shit level. Um, but in the Sydney League, I went and played and, um, uh, to try and get some sort of feel for it, uh, which was a tough learning experience. So I started with the game and worked my way backwards. And the unique thing about it is I could give you any number of mistakes that I made because I treated it as a physiological they need to be able to run 16 kilometres, 2,000 of which is at high speed, 2,000 metres of which is at high speed and 400 metres is which is at sprint. And so we can work backwards from that. But then you throw in the agility, the excels, the decels, and then you finally throw in the contact. And we haven't even mentioned the skill, decision-making. So how do you prepare? Um, generally speaking, um, I don't prepare one physiological system. And then you go and prepare the next. You try and mix them all together and make it an overload various aspects of the game. So once I understood what was required in the game, overload that in pre-season so that when the players are exposed to it in season, uh, the body says, well, this is pretty easy because, you know, in pre-season we did a lot more than this. Um, so this isn't too bad. That's certainly my theory, right? You know, correctly or incorrectly, that's the way... I went about uh, doing it. So that's a fairly long answer, um, but hopefully that, that gives you some insight into into how I did it anyway. Uh, that answer rings true for me. Like as soon as you said that thing about overloading in the preseason, so that when you get into it, you you feel all right about it when you're in season. Like as a player, the the biggest barrier to performance at times was like even being sure that you were ready. Because going into those games, the only thing I've ever seen that was probably a level above the, I'd say I'd say almost fear, or like it's definitely nerves, but there's almost an element of fear when you step in an AFL game of, I'm about to make my body do some stuff that's not, it's not right. Like human bodies weren't built to, maybe you were built to do it once or twice, but to throw yourself around and run that far and hit people, and it's pretty daunting. And no matter how long you do it, there's still an element of butterflies because you know you're going to go out there and get hit. The only time I ever saw anything more intense was sitting on a, 
bus with uh, with the New Zealand rugby team hmm. on the way to a match in Auckland, and I'd, I'd never seen a, a bus go quiet. Everyone gets on and no one speaks for the entire ride from the hotel to the stadium. And it was just this intense, like almost like they're going to war, like you see on the movies and all the guys are in a boat. Like No one talks because everyone's shit scared of what's about to happen to themselves or to, or to their mate. And so, Virgil, you're talking about loading that and giving giving the guy some level of comfort of, all right, I've done everything I can. I'm, I've prepared as best I could so that whatever happens in the game, pretty sure I've done it before. And I've done it plenty of times. I remember North Melbourne had a famous saying, in the couple of years where they dominated the league, uh, of internally they would talk to each other about, we train harder than most teams play. And that gave them a not only clearly a physiological edge, but but obviously a mental edge as well. When things got tough, they were, they were able to look at each other and know that this other, this other group hasn't done what we've done. That was a real sort of uh, a real point of difference that we tried to offer in my second stint at Port Adelaide. Um, uh, Ken Hinckley, the coach, had said, this is the type of player that I want. And so we, we really tried to deliver that um, and, and let the players know that, you know, in our experience, and it wasn't just mine, it was Ken's and Alan Richardson's and, and the great staff that we had, um, we hadn't seen a group train like this. And this was, you know, that was part of the selling point, I guess, of it. Um, the other thing that was just, uh, and probably the international listeners to your podcast, Cody, might not respect, but uh, my first exposure to AFL, I was stunned at the level of fatigue and, you know, the, what these players were prepared to put their bodies through. So what Paddy said, I can't imagine when you were playing, Paddy, but, you know, my first exposure to the Swans was uh, 1997 and we were playing pre-season friendlies. So these were my first exposures and the players that just had six, seven ice packs on uh, after games from pre-season friendlies and that that ability to know that you're about to put yourself through two hours of absolute physical hell is extraordinary and I've said this to a few soccer players, footballers, I can only recall a handful of games in my, um, uh, you know, including Socceroos and Premier League and however many games I've been involved with in soccer where players have come off the ground and physically cannot give any more. And that's when games go to extra time and penalties and things like that. In, in your standard AFL game, even with rotations at the moment, 75% of players couldn't give any more. It, it, you know you're going to put yourself through physical exhaustion, not even to mention the, the, um, the contact that you're about to go through. So it's a, yeah, it's a real... Um, it's a genuine war, and I, I can imagine it would be similar to a, uh, a, a rugby and, and perhaps ice hockey in terms of the physical contact. But my goodness, they, they put themselves, you know, they've got so much respect because there's a physical contact as well as the physiological exhaustion that they're going through. That's a perfect segue, actually, Burjo, because we've kind of glossed over Paddy's post career journey. Paddy, why don't you? Tell us about that transition from player into what you're doing now in mental performance. I've had a lot of 
sports psychologists on the show from, you know, Michael Gervais at the Seahawks to Meg Popovic with the Maple Leafs and Dan Abrahams who works in the Premier League, but they're all psychologists, you know, not former athletes. So why don't I just open the floor to you and tell us how you've ended up where you are now, because personally I find it fascinating and I'm sure the listeners are going to as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Virgo started to touch on there. That uh, that's an amazing stat to me, Virgo. That seventy-five percent can't give anymore. It doesn't. You know, from my personal experience, it doesn't surprise me. But still, having stepped out of the sport, and I haven't been in AFL now for six years, I think it it still just is an amazing number. And I agree. I, I haven't seen I haven't seen a sport like that, except maybe it wouldn't be seventy-five percent. But rugby, give it a fair crack. Um, the, but as part of that, you know, as I mentioned as a player, but knowing going into the game, there's a, there's a, you almost have to be a little bit screwed in the head to be able to convince yourself that it's okay to do this every week. And obviously getting paid a, a decent wage helps. Uh, but, but there are many people, you know, Burjo discovered there are many people who do it for free uh, at a community level because there's something beyond just the idea of I'm going to whip myself here that that comes from being part of a team and particularly being part of a not only the, the team on the field but the community around the team um, and and that I was always curious about that I was lucky enough while Danny was our coach at Richmond he brought in a group called leading teams um, which some listeners may be familiar with uh, if you're in Australia you might have heard of them but it was basically a consultancy who took leadership training models from the Australian Air Force where they had been facilitators and trainers for 10 years. And they were actually involved in community football in uh, country Victoria. And they tried it at a team that worked pretty well. And, and they tried it at a team in the SANFL and it, and it worked pretty well. They started winning championships. And then they made their way in a couple of AFL teams. And I firsthand as a player saw the culture, which I mentioned briefly before wasn't great when I arrived. I saw the culture change and the, and the group psychology of that team change. And for a team like Richmond, who hadn't been in the finals for 30-odd years when I was there, uh, had gone from a team who had underperformed and would constantly just miss the playoffs, famous for finishing ninth, which is just outside the, the bracket in, in Australia, um, then went on, on to a, basically the semi-final or the conference championship in, in other sports. from from 30 years of mediocrity to a team that were like almost on the mark. I probably overperformed. We probably overperformed in the finals a little bit and, and made it further than we should. But I tangibly saw this group from the inside change. And that fascinated me. I did a little bit of work with them. I actually was, I finished a physio, physiotherapy degree while I was there. So I ended up doing physio for a few years. But it just never really spoke to me in the same way that the the mental side of things spoke to me as well as the fact that so not only was I interested in the performance side of that, I had a very personal experience while I was playing where I was caught up in living the life and you know, pretending I was an athlete. And, uh, and I had a call from my dad one time that I brushed for a day or two or three. And then when I finally got back to him, he, uh, he sounded pretty shaken and he told me that my auntie, my godmother actually, who lived around the corner from me and was my closest next relative, I guess, had committed suicide. And so the combination of that happening as well as this 
org site group coming in or as well as I was struggling with a lot of injuries and just really a, a lot of things happening mentally kind of opened up a Pandora's box and, and just really lit a fire in me to be curious and, and eventually just continue to follow our path. I ended up back at the Crows and I can speak to what Burjo spoke to about before when his second stint at Port Adelaide, there was an absolute aura around that team because it was known, A, that Burjo was a gun and, uh, and they had hired him for the express purpose of being as fit as possible. But then you actually saw it happen. Like these players had a t- had an aura about them that in the fourth quarter, if they were close, it was going to be trouble because they would they would overrun every team. And partly, obviously, because of the physiological effects of what Virgil would put them through. But there was an there was absolutely a psychological thing that was happening with those players that they they just knew that they were going to overrun the next team. Um, and I was at Adelaide during that time, the crosstown rival as the player development manager and then eventually moving into a high performance role. But while I was doing that, this is a long story, but this is a very weird way of ending up in America. I would come here every off season just to visit teams, partly because of the tax write-off and I like going overseas. And I happened to be flying over the Pacific, uh, reading a book about psychology and, um, and how to improve players how to improve young minds, basically. And, and I was reading it from the lens of we were the Adelaide Crows who'd been penalised for a salary cap breach and we lost our first two draft picks for two years in a row. So effectively, we were not going to have access to any talent at all. And we were at a huge disadvantage. And my job, given the role that I had, was to turn a third rounder into the equivalent of a first rounder. And we, we all had the sports science that everyone's competing in that race and, and we had some pretty good people on board at that point. So I wasn't going to try and angle that way. I was looking at it more from a point of view of what is there psychologically that can do that. And I was reading this book. It mentioned a researcher, Angela Duckworth, who I really liked her work and I'd read a lot of her papers and it spoke to me about things we could develop in, in Australian footballers. And it mentioned that she was in Philadelphia and I was headed to Philadelphia to visit with the Eagles. And so I landed, sent an email and, you know, hopefully this turns into something. And I woke up the next day with four emails. This guy had connected me to both Angela, but also three of the other leading psychologists in America. And all of a sudden I, I was meeting these people who, you know, had charged $10,000 speaking fees and I was getting two hours alone with them to talk about our problems at the Adelaide Crows. They mentioned to me this, uh, this course at the, at the University of Pennsylvania. I was like, thanks, but I just signed the big action. I was working with Brenton Sanderson, who I loved and didn't want to leave that. And so I went back. That year was a tough one for the Crows, um, off the back of Dean Bailey passing away and, and a number of other things happening around the club that just made it really unstable. And by the end of the year, the board had decided to move Sando on. And I was back in America at the time when I got the news. And and they, you know, eventually I, I was part of Sando's stuff, so I got paid out. And, and I was like, all right, well, I've got enough money to do it, so let's see what happens in America. And I studied a Master's of Psychology here. And while I was doing that, through contacts, met some people at the Eagles. And, and the next thing I know, I was working in NFL training camp, and it really just took off from there. So now I've, I have done that in three sports over here. and and starting to do a more broad purview of that into the coaches and also overseeing 
just a, a performance development program. It just seemed to be an area that was not really done well or consistently. And, and it was a, not only from a duty of care to the athlete, but also a potential competitive advantage. I just want to change gears for a second because I want to ask you guys about some of the cultural elements and even the org structures within pro sports, you know, particularly within high performance even, and kind of the siloed nature of that. You know, we often hear about some of the dynamics between different divisions within the same team. So it might be the fitness guys, the, the medical staff, the coaches. How easy or difficult is it to get everyone on the same page at an organizational level given all the different facets, the stressors that you have with the media, the outside pressures, where the club is at at that time. How difficult is all of that to manage given what's swirling around and just knowing that you're there to, to make the players better and the coaches better? It's a tough one because every CEO, and I've heard it a couple of times now, but every CEO will say to you, oh, no matter what happens with the coach, um, you know, we want the people around the coach to stay the same. So when a new manager comes in, and, and at Liverpool there was three managers that came in, um, and I was lucky enough to stay there the whole time, as with the majority of the medical and fitness teams. Um, and one of the managers actually said to me, I wanted you sacked, but the owners wouldn't allow it. Um, so uh, it was a good way, literally the first conversation he had with me. Um, so it was a good way to start, uh, start the conversation and uh, start the relationship. And so yeah, the, the managers want to bring in their own people and a lot of people in our positions think that this is madness and shouldn't happen. And you look at the average life of a manager in the Premier League and it's something like just over a year, I believe, perhaps even less now. And... So if you're going into a place where the average lifespan is a year, of course you're going to want the people around you who you can trust. Now, do I think that that should be a bunch of yes men and women who do everything? That you, no, obviously that's not the case. And unfortunately, in the majority of cases, that's what happens. But um, it, the, the, the ability to bring in your own people who you trust and who you know have your back is really, really important. So um, it's a, a roundabout way of answering the question. I could sit here on your podcast, Cody, and say, yes, of course, everybody should get together and everybody should sing from the same hymn, put, uh, hymn sheet and put the athlete first. And It's just not what happens. It's, it's what happens in the AFL. It's what happens in European rugby, which are the two best domains for performance specialists without question. Um, but it doesn't happen in the majority, certainly of Premier League and to my knowledge of, of, of a lot of other world sports. So how do you best do it? Um, I think the club should hire a club appointment as a uh, performance specialist, director of human performance, director of high performance, however you want to label. I'm not much into labels. And that person's responsibility should be the merging of the coach philosophy with the club philosophy, which is not always going to be the same because the coach has to win the next six games, otherwise they're fired, and the club has to develop assets, young players to resell 
or to um, to you know to make into first team players, and they're competing assets. They're natural enemies of each other. So uh, I think that that sort of appointment is really important for each club. How many of them around? There's only two or three in the Premier League, so uh, there's there's not too many of those. Um, uh, and in European sport, there's there's probably only ten percent of clubs have them. Um, but that's how I think it would be best managed. Um, it's not always perfect and won't always work, but it'll put you in the best um, the best position to to get that relationship forward. So I don't want to waste your time on the podcast by saying, well, doctors and physios and fitness people. They should all get along fine and psychologists and statisticians and that's how it should work and we should all have, you know, mediated sessions where we choose three buzzwords and and that's what we um, go ahead and do. And and I've been involved with that and I've done all that and to a certain extent it works, but you need the backing of the manager and the the head people at at the club and that's not always the case. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. I think, you know, the... The idea of having a, a, I guess I would I would have labelled that a middleman, but whatever you want to call it, I'm not into labels either. That that there is someone who is responsible for internally helping find a middle ground between the coach's philosophy and the team's philosophy, and and what is important right now. Because sometimes it's hey we're out of the race, and so now we're going to develop, or sometimes it's we should win this year. And I've seen both of those ends of the spectrum, and the two operations run differently, and. At the end of the day, to Burjo's point, none of us in the back room, even though we all work our butts off and we all think we're, we're helping in our own way, none of us have to sit at the press conference with the cameras on us and the lights and have people tweeting about us and sending death threats and all that sort of bullshit because that's the head coach. And at the end of the day, when you can talk all you want, he's the one who has to wear it because if it doesn't work, he's the one who gets fired. And there is a really, really... It's nice in theory, I agree with Burjo, to have the, the corporate org psych stuff can be applied and you know, pretend that's going to work, but it's a really different dynamic in some ways. And I was, you know, as a youngster, because I saw it firsthand at Richmond, I, I, I drank the Kool-Aid and I went and actually worked for that company for a little bit in New Zealand, facilitating those sessions where you would have a group of people talk about what they value and agreed agreed way we're going to do things and then having feedback loops and and it was effective in some instances but i made the mistake of thinking it would be effective in all instances because i'd seen it work and i went to new zealand who are a much nicer country than australia and their and relationships are more important to them than they are to australians which is saying something because australians value relationships and so this feedback loop and the way it was done in Australia was partly it was a little a little abrasive for for the New Zealand culture, and also it was uh, it was coming from Australians. So it's like for for our international listeners, it'd be the equivalent of uh, Scotland being told what to do by England or America being told what to do by Canada. Like these are just things that you, there's an inbuilt rivalry, and so there were things that I didn't understand around the. the getting those departments and getting a team to operate at high efficiency until I went in there and, and effed it up and and learned by doing it the wrong way and watching the reaction of people who were really good at their jobs just saying, no, no, that's not it. That's not, I'm not doing it. That's not, doesn't make sense. And there is a middle ground that Burjo mentioned there that I think is really important of 
yeah, there's best practice and and it's the same as taking a, a sports science approach into a team. There's best practice in the lab, absolutely. But the practitioners know stuff that we don't. And, and, and I was working, lucky enough to have in a room yesterday, a former Navy SEAL commander, the current head of FBI weapons training, uh, a neuropsych specialist in vision and perception, and our own coaching staff at the 76ers. And we were just talking shop about the fact that, you know, you can have all your research you want. The indigenous population, they say in the Navy SEALs, as you go in and, and embed yourself in a village, like they know stuff that we will never know. And there needs to be recognition of that and also an, an ability to, to have them feel comfortable talking about what they know and, and not have it discarded by the, by the group who are essentially invading their space in some ways. And so the, back to Virgo's point of having someone who is org appointed, but their job isn't to do just what the org wants. Their job is to do what's best for the team. And sometimes that includes listening and changing. Virgo, it'd be remiss of me to be sitting here in Toronto and not ask you this question. The whole Kawhi Leonard thing has blown up, obviously, in Toronto all last year. Everyone was talking about load management. It's gotten a little bit silly and this is a bit of a jovial question, but with someone like yourself on the line with your pedigree in fitness and human performance, can you tell us, is it even a thing? Is it media beat up? What are we dealing with here? I need you to sort it out for me once and for all. Yeah, from a load management, it's become a, it's become a, a sexy word in uh, you know, I, I, I prefer to call it common sense. Um, there's no magic formula. No one's been able to predict injuries. Anybody who tells you they can is lying. Um, I've had statisticians pour over the very best applied data that you can collect and find nothing. Um, and that's in a, you know, a fairly homogenous uh, group. So you just can't, predict injuries with any given team because Paddy, when he was working at the Adelaide Crows and I'm at Port Adelaide, you can't get a closer sample size in location and everything, but everything that they do is different to what we do. So you, you can't, you can't predict it um, between two teams in the same city. So sports scientists and ex-fears people who say that they're managing load are basing it off really hopefully common sense in that if a player continually reports that they're sore or that they're tired or that they're injured, and you can trust that player and you have to put that caveat in, can you trust that player? Because we would, I will sit here and say as a, a 45-year-old has been, I would never have lied in an RPE or I would never have lied in a wellness. But, of course, you would. if you got the chance to have a couple of days off, you're going to exaggerate how... After a loss, you're going to exaggerate. After a win, you're going to feel a lot better. So once you understand all of those nuances within your players, if you continually ignore the signs, then you're increasing your risk of injury. But if I walked into the Toronto Raptors now and tried to apply the load management skills that I've learned from Premier League, from um, AFL, and as a fan of the Houston Rockets, it's not going to go that well um, because it just it's not contextual and it's not going to apply and I don't know the players and they don't know me. So, so I'm taking your jovial question a bit seriously here. Um, 
I honestly think a lot of load management strategies are a myth. I really do. And it's perpetuated, unfortunately, I've said this before, unfortunately by Australian sports scientists who are in some ways justifying their job and I've been guilty of this in my early days. And, um, oh, no, you can't train here. Why? Because he's trained two days in a row and, um, you know, she shouldn't train three days in a row. Try telling that to people at the Tour de France. Try telling that to, um, you know, we had a stretch last year in Arsenal where some of our players trained over 13, 14 days in a row because of the fixture schedule. And we got through. There was a couple of issues, but the majority of them got through. So it can happen. And it, it, it's, I think some of the load management principles have just gone way too far. So the media will jump on it and they'll think it's marginal gains. And yeah, I just don't, I think it's just common sense. And Paddy, do you want to add your two cents into that, mate, as someone that's in the NBA? Now, the, the balance of power is with the players and if you want a superstar like Kawhi and you want him to stay, you'll promise him the world and, and it can really snowball from there. Now, Toronto handled it perfectly, but, the, but I would say there was, there was part sports science and part people management, salesmanship, whatever you want to call it. To Burjo's point around the, the overdoing of the promises or people justifying their roles and I was also I've also been guilty of that early days so I'm not saying it's uh, that I'm a saint in any way but that there's a, there's some examples that we have currently with guys who are trying to make a spot on an NBA roster they're like 15th 16th in line and they've kind of been drafted the funny thing here in America is if you get drafted it doesn't actually mean you're going to be on the team that drafts you it just means yeah. they have the rights to sign you and, you know, the, the early guys obviously get signed, but if you're drafted late, it just means you're coming to training camp. And there's a guy who's had a bit of an injury history, but he's 19 years to 20 years old and he's busting his butt to try and make an NBA roster or even just sign me to the G League. Just I want to show you that I, that I can do what you need me to do. And he's losing his mind when we're asking him to step off the court. There's an element there of, yeah, sure, that, like, you can manage his load but to what end because if we keep him healthy but he doesn't get signed who's winning out of that there, there's an the, the front office needs to see stuff and the kid would hate us for life and when would forever regret that he got drafted by this team if he never got a chance to actually show he could do what he needs to do and so there is a there's a contextual element to it where the feel for, to, to Burjo's point, the, the feel for a sport or in particular, the feel for that athlete and his current situation as a human being is trying to get a contract. So yeah, he might break, but he'd rather break than not get a shot at the contract. And there needs to be some understanding of that for good practitioners. And then, you know, a lot of good practitioners make a good program if they work with that in mind. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, um, I've been through a few managers in, in football and the, in soccer, that is, and the, yeah, often what, what happens then is, particularly if it's mid-season, is there's a new change in playing style and there's injuries. And that's, that's just what happens because there's a new way of training, a new way of doing things. And that, that's, in that scenario, I've had you know, other staff members say, oh, no, you need to tell the manager to change hang on, we were losing with the old manager and the new managers come in to try and help us win 
And I'm going to go up and say, you need to change your management style because these players are getting injured. You need to not do the tactical training that you want to do in order for us to win to correct our season. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, but we're getting injured. Well, if we're winning, I actually don't care because that's what we all should be judged by. Of course, you know, you, you don't want to get injuries. That is going to be a natural occurrence of changing, changing managers, and that's just uh, the way it is. And uh, you know, the the individual players, of course, they're going to want to push hard and get a contract. And if they happen to push through, then then so be it. Uh, I think we've come a bit become a bit obsessive with the um, with the injury prevention. The best way to prevent injuries is to make players more resilient. Yeah, and I think I think the the I guess if we're peeling it back to the cultural stuff that you were trying to talk about before, Cody, is the it probably comes a little bit from being being more comfortable and stable in your role, but being able to be in a role like Burjo's or like my own and say I'm not here to do my job, and that might sound counterintuitive, but my job is is at times at odds with winning and at times at odds with what the coach might want. And I need to have the, the feel to be able to decide when to go with it and when not. But in reality, I'm, I'm here to serve the needs of players and coaches. And I'm also here to win. And if I do those things well enough and in the right balance at the right time, then I'm doing my job. But the reverse effect happens where my job is to stop injuries. So I'm just going to stop injuries at all costs. It means that we don't win. We fire the other coach. This player doesn't get his contract. Like, if we flip it instead and say, "I'm here to help that player get what he wants. I'm here to help the coach get what he wants. I'm going to use my skill set to do that." It totally shifts the paradigm. You end up achieving what you want to achieve, but it's done in a much in, in a way where you're servicing the needs of the stakeholders as opposed to just trying to hang on for dear life to your own job. I reckon that's a perfect way to wrap up the conversation, lads. I know Burjo's got to run off and pack some boxes for the big move back to Melbourne. So let's start here. Burjo, for the people that have been listening to you today that want to get in touch with you, how can they reach out to you either on social media or what's the best way to find you? Oh, the best way is probably just through uh, Twitter, I guess, uh, at Darren Burgess 25. Um, that's, yeah, that's probably the best way. Um, I'm always happy to um, engage with people and, and chat and, um, yeah, debate. They can disagree. It's brilliant. It's good for the industry. So, um, yeah, uh, happy, to, happy to communicate with people via that way. And same question to you, Paddy. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, but I, don't, I can't remember the last time I posted, so it's probably not the best channel. I, uh, I, Instagram's my most regularly visited public spot, uh, and I'm at PJ Steinfort, S-T-E-I-N-F-O-R-T. Awesome, lads. Well, this is going to go all around the world. I'm really fortunate to have a lot of high-performance people uh, listening to the show every week, a lot of coaches listening to the show, a lot of people are trying to break into sports. So a lot of people have been anticipating listening to this episode. So thank you both. And we'll have to get together for a beer if we're ever in the same city at the same time. Sounds good. Virgil, you can fly up when we're up there playing the Raptors. That's probably the easiest way to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real simple. <laughs> you about a week's notice to get there. No worries. <laughs> uh, thanks for having us, Cody. It was great. I love talking shop and particularly with someone 
uh, of your level with all the work you've done and, and Burjo's resume speaks for itself. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.